Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world and thus making the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on Wiradjuri country and this podcast is brought to you from Turrbal and Yagara country. I'd like to recognise the first Australian's custodianship of this country for tens of thousands of years and their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to elders past, present and emerging. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. To the conscious horse people who came before me to lead the way. To those who stand beside me in our community now. And for those who will continue after we are long gone. I'd like to say thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that Lauren and I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from. And if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There is a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast episode. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery, equine communication and human and horse relationship building. Peter has had communication with my mare Gypsy, who was the mare with me in the podcast picture. And he was spot on about everything in there and he helped me a lot. So I can highly recommend his work personally. Peter has also helped some of the listeners of this podcast, all of those who speak very highly of his work. You can contact Peter by looking him up on Facebook under Peter and the Herd, or you can go to the show notes and follow the links there. In this episode, I speak with Steph Kalstrom. Steph was born in Peru and adopted by her single mother and raised in Canada. As for most of us equestrians, she fell in love with horses the first time she saw them and went into the world of hunter jumpers. I learned a lot about hunter jumpers as well. It was a nice little education for me in many ways. Steph is a big part of the voice of black equestrians and she has so much to teach us if we can stop and listen. I was waiting with great anticipation for this chat from the moment Steph said yes and booked in to have this interview. Steph is someone whose voice I listen to, and I mean really listen to. Every time she posts on her socials or writes a new blog, I read up and take note. I always learn something new. Steph is a minority in our equestrian world in many ways. She has a choice to stay in her lane stay small and keep doing her thing and she'd be happy enough. As you will hear in this interview, she's busy enough already. She didn't need to take on another cause. But this is not just another cause for Steph. This is her life. She writes from experience and her perspective always teaches me something new. As a white woman, I can only use my imagination for a lot of the racism that black equestrians encounter on a daily basis. And a lot of it is not big event trauma. It's not something major that happens on one day. It's the little things every day that are ever present and eat away at the most basic need we all have as humans, the need to belong. 
And it's not just giving me perspective that I admire and learn from Steph. It's how she writes and the feelings I get when I read her work. In Steph's words, I hear a strong and very intelligent woman who is fierce and will not be bullied into submission by those trying to dull her words and make her sit down and wait her turn. She reminds me of the wild horses making horse trainers change their ways as they will not submit to the old traditional training methods. She has the fierceness and the beauty that those wild horses have that I love. I love reading Steph's work as I strive to be a voice in the way that she is a voice. I love the feeling I get when I read her work and I would love to be able to have that same presence. Her words are thoughtful, heartfelt and moving and always, every single time, they are the truth. She calls out anyone who tries to shame or stifle her. That's what I mean by fierce. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I hope after the conversation you go and follow Steph on her socials and support the incredible change she is making in the horse world. Here is Steph. Steph, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's great to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. It's um, it's a wonderful thing doing this podcast because I get to ask amazing questions of people that I really want to know a lot more about. And you're one that I've had on my radar since I first came onto your socials. It's, um, it's extraordinary what you're doing and I love your work so much. So I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. Uh, first, I, I really want to start at the start with you. Tell me your story. Where were you born? How did it all begin for you? Um, well, I was born in Peru. Um, and I was adopted when I was three months old. And that's when I came to Canada shortly after. Um, and in Vancouver, in particularly, so on the West Coast. And that's where I have lived and grown up my entire life, aside from a few years um, in the next province over for university. Um, but other than that, I've been very true to sticking in Vancouver. And do you know much about the adoption process that happened when you were that young? You know, I don't know a lot about it. And um, I know that I was adopted from an orphanage. I don't have a birth certificate. And um, that's just because it happened to be lost along the years. Um, Somebody has offered to help me acquire a birth certificate, but um, I, I mean, in the late 80s, early 90s in Peru, it was still considered a developing country. So to gather the information to get a birth certificate and a birth certificate that I had with no father's name and no mother's first name on it would be pretty tedious um, and challenging to even acquire. So I just haven't really attempted to do it. Wow. How do you feel about that? I mean, I don't 
think I need my birth certificate. When I was applying for um, things like a driver's license, it was a little bit of a complication, but because I had a passport, I could use that. Um, also, it was a little bit complex when I applied for a Nexus or trusted travelers card because they want all your documentation that you've ever had in your life. And I have, I mean, what I have currently, passport, driver's license, and healthcare card. Um, I mean, it does cause a little bit of a complication, but um, I also have a citizenship card from with a baby picture on it, which also isn't super helpful, but um, it's another piece of ID that I can sort of get away with not having a birth certificate. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things that you don't think about when you've got one but when you don't have one yeah. it's something that you would need to think about yes mm. for sure interesting and who adopted you um my mom so my mom was a single mom and um she actually met several other um families down in Peru who were adopting either children the same age as me or a little bit older at around the same time and they were able to connect and form sort of lifelong friendships and I'm still connected with those children to some aspect and our parents are still all connected for sure um and they have been since we were adopted. And most of them actually live, I would say, within at least half an hour, an hour of each other here in Vancouver and the Tri-Cities. Um, and some of them even now have their own children because that was decades ago now. Mm. And... How have you all grown up? How, how was it growing up for you all in a different country? It must have been interesting. I think because we were all um, babies when we were adopted, um, I would say we didn't really know any different. I think that, um, I mean, I think that's, most of us had a little bit different experience, but sort of the common experience that all of us sort of had some experience with racism. I mean, me, for example, I am Afro-Peruvian. So that would be um, somebody who also, who is black and Peruvian Hispanic heritage and so early 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 in the late 1500s in Peru is sort of when the slave um, trade was happening there and enslaved Africans were coming to Peru and being distributed I mean like possessions to the neighboring countries and up into um 
what's known as the US now and things like that is sort of how this Afro-Peruvian culture and peoples happened because there is a whole population because of the slave trade long, long ago. Mm. And a displaced population, it seems as well. Systemically, it takes um, in family constellation work that I was trained in three generations to, to heal a deep wound like that within a, within a culture, if it's happened to a culture, which it seems it has. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, within the Afro-Peruvian community, um, even now, there is racism that's being experienced. I mean, of course, hundreds of years ago, they were not free people, they were enslaved people, and they were responsible for building most of the infrastructure in Peru. Um, of course, when slavery became illegal, these people had to find somewhere to go. And they tended to live in more segregated communities. And of course, when the communities eventually started to assimilate with each other, there was racism, there was racism everywhere. And I mean, even to this day, there still, there still is. And um, I was reading, I was reading somebody's perspective um, who is an Afro-Peruvian and I can't remember the name now, um, growing up in Peru and it was even, almost classified um, in sort of a colorism way, in a way that we know you're Afro-Peruvian, but if you're darker Afro-Peruvian, then for example, you're less intelligent or you know less, or there's all these stigmas that they hold um, within even the shade colors of your skin because Peruvians are not, Peruvians are not Caucasian, they're not light skinned, they're, so they've really sort of implemented a structure of colorism within um, the racism that exists there. Wow. God, it's everywhere, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, and the one... Um... The one little positive part of, um, of your story is that there were the other kids. So it wasn't like you were the, the one little kid with different skin colour amongst the, the entire white population of, of your hometown. It must have been um, at least you could see other children who looked like you. So it wasn't as, um, wasn't as stark as it, it could have been. Yeah, we spent quite a bit of time with each other, of course, not most of us lived in Vancouver. There was one other family who lived in Vancouver proper and the rest were in suburbs. Um, and even the child who lived in Vancouver proper, we didn't go to the same school because we have tons of school districts. And um, 
but we were connected on the weekend or after school or vacations and things like that. We often went on vacations together or camping in the summer, celebrated birthday parties together. So there has been really like a lifelong connection with the children who were adopted at the same time. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Just to have that um, I'm not alone feeling. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's one little thing to hold on to. And tell me about your mum. Why did she adopt you? Do you know? I mean, my mom, I don't really know, but as much as I know, is my mom always wanted a child. Mm-hmm. And so adoption was the route that she chose. Beautiful. And here you are. Yes. Now let's talk about horses. When did they first come into your world? How did you get into them? When when did Um, you see your first horse? Do you remember? I don't actually remember, but I know from stories since I was very, very young, I've always had such a draw to horses or ponies or anything really. I mean, when I was quite young, we still had... um, community fairs and things like that and they would have the pony ride and I always needed to go on the pony ride like that is something that I really wanted to do or when they still had circus type performance shows and there were pony rides apparently there was a time where you could choose to ride the pony or the horse or an elephant and I was insistent that I had to ride the horse not the elephant, mm-hmm. not that it was a, it didn't, it didn't matter to me that maybe it was a once in a lifetime opportunity because I mean, how often are you going to ride an elephant? But I needed to ride the horse. That is what I was going to do. I was going to ride the horse. The elephant was irrelevant to me. And um, yeah, I mean, the horse has just been something that I've been passionate about since I was a toddler and um, when I was eight years old must have been around eight years old um, I went to a birthday party that one of my school friends had and it happened to be at the barn where she took um, lessons on the school horse so they organized a birthday party and we got to ride And from that time on, because the stable was not far from my house, there was no way anybody was going to get me away from the barn because now I knew where it was. It wasn't that far and I was going to ride forever. And here we are, I mean, 25 years later. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. So did you just go and hang out or did you have lessons or did you... So after the birthday party, I believe I started, I think the birthday party might've been in spring. So I believe I started having once a week lessons on a school horse. And um, I believe it was on a Saturday. And then after doing that for a few weeks, well, Saturday wasn't enough. I needed to do Sunday. So I started coming Saturday and Sunday for lessons. Um, And then when summer rolled around, I did the pony camp. So the camp 
generally started at about 8.30 in the morning and went till about 12.30 in the afternoon. Um, and we did a variety of, we had our lesson in the ring and then we did stable management. So learning all about the horse and brushing and horse care and mucking and all that kind of stuff. And then we did mounted games um, was sort of the third thing. And we did that. And I was sort of hooked on those summer camps and spent the entire summer, really the entire summer doing every single week of these camps. And um, the barn owner, the instructor, her daughter, I believe is three years younger than me. And so at the time we became really good friends. So after camp was done, because her daughter and I were really good friends, there was no need for me to go home. I would just be a barn rat, stay all day, <laughs> dawn till dusk. And it didn't really matter to us what we were doing. I mean, we were happy to muck a stall, brush the horses, give them all baths, take them for grass walks, anything really. Um, it wasn't necessarily only riding, it was everything. And it was sort of, um, it was in Southlands. So Southlands is a farm community in the middle of the city, which is very rare. And it has, um, it's on agricultural land. So you can actually have farm animals in the city. Um, and there's not a lot of traffic because there's really no through roads and the speed limit's 30. So as children, we could easily bike around the roads and you ride on the roads to the trail to the river and you could take the trail all the way to the beach if you wanted to and um we could ride our bikes and they have open ditches and you can catch frogs so really there was things to do endlessly all day god it's and the idyllic childhood that's amazing yeah. that's perfect yeah really it was really it was amazing and mm. um yeah, I did that and then started leasing eventually one of the school ponies. And eventually my grandpa, who is who was the animal lover of the family, and he also grew up riding horses on his parents' farm in Sweden. Um so he was really the animal lover. He bought me my first pony. Oh, how beautiful. And Did so he, that, was he still li living in Sweden at that time? No, he actually, um, when my mom moved here for university, she stayed here. And then um, when my grandparents retired, they moved here. Beautiful. So he was close. Yeah. And so he, I mean, he and I connected on a really different level. And I think because there were so many commonalities and not only our personality, but our interests. So animals being one of them, like he was very much like me, the animal person, every animal, it didn't matter what it was. Um, every dog, every cat, every horse, all the things. So I think that was a big connection. And then he um really really supported my riding dreams I mean even as a teenager he bought me my first show horse and it wasn't 
sort of a question. It was, of course we're doing this. It's horses, why wouldn't we do this? Um, and I mean, I think there was hesitation from other people. And I mean, that's normal because horses are an unbelievable investment financially and I mean, time-wise too. So yeah, I mean, my grandpa was incredibly supportive of it. And I think that's something that we shared, although he never actually rode um, that I know of since he was a child, but um, oh, wow. horses he were absolutely got back on. the same. No. Interesting. He lived yeah. vicariously through you. I think that's what grandchildren are for in the end, isn't it? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Indulgence. It's beautiful. And so why did you want to show? What was about what was it about showing that really got you your juices going? I mean, when I was I think maybe nine or ten, we had little pony club shows. So they were obviously local and little tiny shows and things like that. And I mean, showing was sort of ingrained into um, my introduction to riding. So in the pony camps that I would was doing, at the end of every week of pony camp, there was a show. So it was, I mean, of course, not a formalized show like I compete in now, but it was still a show and there were still ribbons and that was just sort of what we did. And I think that, um, when I was a kid, I mean, I tried everything. I did a lot of mounted games with Pony Club. Um, I did some eventing and clinics. I did the jumper ring. I did the hunter ring. I sh did a little bit of dressage and just everything until I sort of found my niche. Um, and I mean, all of those things sort of led me into wanting to be in the hunter ring and that's what I do now. Tell me about what huntering is. I actually don't I guess, know. I would say, tell us all, for those out there who don't know, I don't yes. know what that is. <laughs> the, the very North American um, discipline of the hunters is complex. I would say that um, the politics of it are very similar to dressage because it's judged and I mean judging can't necessarily be objective as we all know mm. so I mean it, it it's difficult because it it really depends for sure for sure there's a hunter style um but then within the hunter style there's the classic hunter or I mean, the, the unconventional hunter and things like that. And it really, sometimes when you're competing at these gold or double A shows, it's really about sometimes what the judge likes, which is fair because that's who's judging the class. And I mean, I think people start to know the judges and what they like and what they don't like, or if they like their horse or they don't like their horse and they know what their, what their preference of style is. And so you sort of, when you do hunters, you sort of have to develop an eye for it. And I would say um, one of my favorite ways to describe it is they're, 
very much into the movement of the horse, but the movement is not at all like dressage. Um, hunters, we like them to be very flat in the knee. So the knee doesn't move at all. We don't like that big movement in the front. We almost want them to sort of um, daisy cut with their, with their front feet. So very little knee movement, but able to cover a lot of ground in a very sort of calm and pleasant and happy way, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and then jumping style, we want them to be very tight in the knees. Um, and I mean, horses have different styles. Like some horses jump a little wider and their knees are farther apart. And I mean, with a good, good hunter, you want them to jump quite tight, but not over jump, but jump quite tight with their knees together. Wow. There's a lot in it. Yes. And I mean, like over the years, some things have changed because, um, I mean, some judges have really, and not so much anymore, had really sort of wanted the horses to almost be mechanical when they go around the ring, which is something that most do not believe in right now because, I mean, that's just, that's so unrealistic. And when we want horses to go around mechanically, we sort of open ourselves up to people doing unethical things and medicating and things like that, which yeah. is totally inappropriate. And yeah. so now judges and most judges have started to accept that, I mean, if a horse jumps a big old oxer lands like he might play a little bit or he might shake his head not because he's upset but because I mean he he loves his job right I mean like he had fun that was interesting mm -hmm. um rather than having a horse that's sour all the time or that is robotic when mm -hmm. they go around a course right so it's good to see the judges are starting to uh, recognise that horses are horses. Yes. <laughs> that they do have a reaction to things just like humans do. Wow. Yes. Extraordinary what we allowed for so long, wasn't it? What we, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the hunter ring has gone in waves. Like when we first started, it was very much a thoroughbred ring. Um, and thoroughbreds are a little bit quicker and they were quite bold because it was just directly at that time taken out of fox hunting. So more solid obstacles and things like that. And now um, in 2020, 2021, um, we do a lot of derbies, which are more solid fences, um, logs, bushes, um, split rail type jumps, stone walls, really interesting things like that, trot fences, um, which really puts these horses to a test, um, not only in height, because they will have higher options. So if you're doing um, a meter 10 hunter course, so three foot six, um, the options are likely going to be a meter 30. So 
I mean, those are, those are good size jumps and those are good size jumps to jump and have your knees sit perfectly tight and um, to flow beautifully down to the next one and in your corner. And it's, it's actually quite lovely to watch when you have a true hunter who's really bred and built for the sport because they can really travel on what I would call a true hunter 14 foot stride in some of those derbies and not look like they are running because they they're bred to do that. I mean, they were bred to have this beautiful, beautiful long stride and then come up to a meter 30 oxer and really just use the hind end and be so tight in the front, almost on a loose rein and then land beautifully and continue as if it was so effortless and nothing has ever happened. And I mean, that is a true, true Hunter Derby horse. And they're really quite amazing to watch. And they have classes. I like to call them the baby derbies because there's no way I'm going to ever in my life jump a meter 10 course and then have meter 30 options. So um, it's small, much smaller jumps, but the same kind of course, maybe a little less technical, but it still has those solid options of walls or barrels or split rails and some bush in it um, and trot fences and things like that. And they're fun. Like, I mean, it's a lot of fun. I would say that the derbies are one of my favorite things to do because I mean, you're not just jumping your regular eight fences um, in straight lines. You're really jumping 20 to 25 fences and their bending lines and their rollbacks and um, there are trot fences and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Sounds amazing. I can hear the, um, I can hear how much you love it in your voice. And I've just yes. been sitting back and, and imagining uh, joining you on the process. It sounds beautiful. Yes. Um, tell me about your first lease pony. Let's take one step back. Who was your first pony that you were allowed to have just as yours? So I leased, a, he was actually a horse. I believe he was 15 hands or 15 one, something like that. And my legs just passed the saddle. <laughs> um, and his name was Bracken. And he was an apple, a blanketed Appaloosa who used to jump the 20s with um, somebody and he had retired into school horse life. Beautiful. And he got to be yours. And what did you learn from Bracken? Anything about yourself, about horses? I think that um, being the first lease horse, like I obviously had a really strong connection with him. But in addition to that, I think that um, having a lease horse, something that you're actually technically responsible for. And because I was quite young, of course, there was help from parents and trainers and things like that. But it was really responsibility. You really learn responsibility at that time because this is the animal that you are responsible for, that you are riding, that you are bathing, that you are taking care of. Um, This is sort of your job and being, I think I was nine or 10 years old. That's, that's a big learning curve for a child that age. It is. It's still quite young, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a great time to learn it though. Um, Beautiful. So then you went on to, how old were you when you bought your first show horse? Uh, I want to say it was maybe 12 years old. Wow. So just sort of when we go from elementary school to high school, I think it was just before that time for me. And his name was Griffin. And he was five when I got him. So not not too old and not too young, still a bit to learn together there. How How was Griffin? What was that relationship like? Griffin was everything to me and he um what of course I didn't know when I got him um he actually came from someone who abused him pretty badly so I being a kid who rides with a whip just because so the horse doesn't get behind your leg um my trainer put it in my hand and he lost it and he took off and I got dumped and that's when we sort of realized that this horse had been beaten and beaten really badly um and so this was my first horse that I was sort of boarding independently and of course I had a trainer but um the barn manager at the time she said you know we had to start turning Griffin out first because they were in stalls at night and then turned out all day. And I said, oh, why? And they said, you know, he can't even make it to his paddock before he goes pee. Like he has to pee on the way. And I, they said he never pees in his stall. And I said, what are you talking about? And so apparently it had been figured out because another horse who had lived with the same person who abused him would apparently beat them so they didn't pee in the stall because she didn't like to clean it up. So he was literally holding it all night. Does that cause problems? I mean, now that I think of it, it should have. Um, I'm not sure. It took him years to stop doing that. Years to stop doing that. Um, Because, of course, then I couldn't take him to a horse show even. Because, I mean, they don't have paddocks at the horse show. And he needs to pee in his stall. He can't just not pee. Yeah. Oh, that um, But it took years for him to, um, to learn. And then, you know, there was one time where I had sort of graduated from him and needed to get what I call, what I would call a real show horse. And I thought about selling him. And then someone was about to come to look at him. And I just sort of said, you know, I can't. I cannot get rid of this horse. I said, I owe it to him to have some stability for him and I'm going to keep him and I'm going to keep him forever. And that's what I did. So he went on to be leased by a couple of people and um, he had an injury once for, so I turned him out um, in a herd for a couple of years at a family friend's place which he loved and um but yeah like our riding friendship like he was not spooky at all and I mean myself and my friend all summer we would sort of gallop around on the polo field chasing geese and um 
ride our ponies through the sprinklers and go swimming in the river with the horses. And I mean, kid things, kid things that you need a bomb proof pony for, which is what he turned out to be. And um, I mean, even as an, and we had, I had such a connection with him because even as an adult, like he knew, he knew my voice really, really well. And he would always whinny at me if it had been a long time since I'd seen him. And towards the end of his life, towards the end of his life, um, he was at the same barn where I started riding with the same family um, being a school horse for them. So I would say for the last eight years of his life, that's what he did. Um, and he was a school horse for them and he was great and he was great for them and they loved having him. And um, he had a great big turnout in and out, which he loved even more. And he was fantastic. And then I um, lost him, I believe it was in 2018. And he apparently had fractured his hip and we have no idea how he did that um, and had significant debilitating arthritis in that joint as well. Mm. But he had a good life. I think we had 22 years together. Yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah. totally beautiful. Wow. Wow. And who was your next horse? My next horse was Sid, um, who, I mean, I mean, I really believe in things happening for a reason most of the time, um, but I must have been 15 or 16, and for whatever reason, I had a six-year-old sport horse, which was ridiculous because I was not ready to have a six-year-old sport horse because I got bucked off a lot and she scared me a lot and she was very spooky um but she was gorgeous and she took time to figure out and um moving around to different programs to get the right trainer fit for her because the horse needed pro rides often. And I mean, to show her the horse needed to be schooled by a pro before I could, I mean, safely and confidently go into the ring and show my own horse because that was sort of the horse she was. She was very, very spooky and she was quite green when I got her. So I mean, and I lost a lot of confidence on her because she was so green. And it, I mean, it wasn't her fault. It, it just was not appropriate for a fairly novice teenager coming off a pony to be on a green, really athletic horse. Yeah. and that's just what it is yeah that's a big jump isn't it but there's yeah. so many times where you know with the wisdom of age we look at these things now and yeah. and we can say that easily and 
you know, I'm in my 40s and I'm still making choices based on the mistakes I made back when I was younger. And I was like, well, I know something now that I didn't know back then. But um, the amount of things we do back then when we just go, yeah, that horse is great. I'll have that horse. And then we just go, what was I doing to myself? Exactly. Exactly, though. I mean, I don't regret. I do not regret having her for a minute because I actually she actually ended up getting injured when I um, was off in university. I had her lease to someone and she got injured. Um, And because she was a mare, I bred her. And um, that horse, her baby is my horse of a lifetime now. Oh, there you go. So, so if it wasn't for that mare, I wouldn't have this horse. Yeah. So tell me about this horse. So this horse is Tigger um, and he turns 11 in July. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Which yeah. is crazy to me because, I mean, where have the last 11 years gone, right? But um, he is... I think some people say it, it's hard because you some you sometimes people are lucky to get two horses of a lifetime. But I mean, really, this this horse is the horse of the lifetime. He is the most useful horse in most barns, I would say, and he will do anything for me. He is willing and ready to go on a trail ride any day, and then he is willing and ready to step in the ring and win in the best of company. He just, he is just that good. And he is just that versatile and he's really lovely to ride. um, And just everything about him. He has quite the personality, um, which I'm sure has very much to do with the fact that he's only known me his whole life. So his ground manners are horrific um he thinks that everybody has a treat for him and he's never had a bad day in his entire life so he very much is up on himself and thinks he's very great and um is really cheeky is a really cheeky bugger I love it I love yeah (laughs) and that's but great to sit on yeah 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 and that's the reward see for um for keeping the traumatized horse you get one that is um full of character and yes and love and yeah not traumatized it's an amazing difference yeah totally wow so we've been through all the beautiful parts of the horse world what have been the not nice parts of the horse world that you've experienced you know the horse world can be quite tricky um And I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I don't know if some of the things that happen in the horse world are very unique to the horse world or if they're just something that happens everywhere. But I find um, the horse world has been and probably still is very um, exclusive, but in a way that's very unwelcoming to a lot of people and very cliquey and gossipy and that kind of thing and it's so unappealing for somebody new who's coming in um 
but there has absolutely, I think, been a huge change to try and eliminate that type of behavior lately, but it still exists. It exists in the big show barns, it exists in the little private barns, it just exists everywhere. Um, yeah, that would exist even, still here in Australia. Yeah, and I mean, even small things like changing trainers can be a big eruption of tempers and, and it shouldn't be. I mean, it really, it really shouldn't be. And I wish, I wish it wasn't, but I mean, it's something that just tends to happen in this sport and whether that's unique to this sport, I don't know. Um, But yeah, it, it can be, it, it can be ugly at times. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not sure why the horse world became that way in the first place. Maybe it's just like a, a concentrated version of what happens out in the out in the big wide world, and because it's a little bit smaller than the big wide world, it, it feels yes. like it's quite concentrated. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you, what led you to start? Did you are you one of the founders of Young Black Equestrians? No. Um. So I. So I run, I help run the page Black Equestrians with um, Jen and Maya. And so the person who founded it is actually um, Jen Spencer. And she, um, and she founded, oh, I believe it was in July of 2020 or June of 2020. I can't. I can't quite remember is when she founded this Instagram page and she just thought there was such a need. It was around the time or just after the global protests for Black Lives Matter, um, around the same time that either that very stark articles comparing Um, perspectives in the equestrian world were coming out so there was the very much in support of Black Lives Matter and being anti-racist articles that came out and really calling people out to do better and then in retaliation to those articles were people who didn't want generally it was young people to rock the boat and who felt personally victimized by being called out and told to do better or that they are being complicit um, in their behaviors and things like that. So it was around that time that Jen created this um, Instagram page, which really blew up in the last year. And I think it was around in August where I sort of jumped on board to help um, with posts and things like that. yeah, and I mean, so we have people, a couple of projects going on and things like that in accordance, but yeah. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I just want to stop and talk about the fact that people were offended that the horse world was asked to do better as far as mm-hmm. racing goes. They were offended by that. <laughs> I mean, there are still many to this day who are offended by um by the fact that there is 
still racism in the horse world and not because of the racism because they don't believe there's any racism in the horse world so they're offended that this idea is even being thrown in their direction wow and it's only those that complain you know that have it in their bones oh absolutely yeah it's it's an interesting exercise in human behavior that one that's extraordinary but not surprising in the end Wow. And so how much racism did you find in the horse world? Were you coming up through the ranks where in your home life you had the other kids that were adopted from um, from Peru as well? So you had somebody who looked, you know, like you. What did you find it was like in the horse world for you? Um, you know, I, Vancouver, as much as they say it's multicultural, it's not. And in particular, there are like zero black people in Vancouver. So there is nobody who looks like me. The sports that I chose were tennis and riding. There are no black people in either of those sports in Vancouver, like zero. Um, There was, when I was growing up in elementary school, two other black children in the school, not in my class, in the school. Wow. Um, oh, maybe three, but anyways, in the, in the entire school. And I believe we had about 400 in the school. Um, I mean, it was uncomfortable, but it was a, I don't know how to explain it. It was a familiar uncomfortableness is really what it was it was uncomfortable but it was something that was normalized for me and familiarized for me because it happened everywhere it happened in my sports it happened at home my entire family is white they're Swedish Mm -hmm. I mean my school my everywhere so it was it was a normalized discomfort all the time I mean, I, I never, I never knew any different. I mean, for me, what I would say when I was a child, I would almost feel more uncomfortable if white people were the minority because it's just not what I'm used to ever. Ah, so it didn't, it, it, it was, it was just normal for you, but it was normal in a way that you didn't carry tension around it. It's just normal, normal. I mean, I think I carried tension. I think the reason I carried tension is because for any person feeling, I mean, for sure, I still was very aware that I was the only black person there. Mm. Um, And not that I really understood why there was bias against me. I did understand that I got blamed for a lot of things or I often was obviously seen as different, even though I had sort of normalized that as something that happened all the time. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I was just so used to that kind of discomfort because it was normal for me that I just didn't know 
anything different. And although the other, the opposite way would be uncomfortable to me, it would be uncomfortable in a different way. It would be uncomfortable because it was the unknown, not because of racism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And so was the horse world any different to the regular world as far as racism goes or was it just the same old little story happening? No, it's, I mean, it's the same. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's the same. I mean, it's very obvious that the equestrian world is not made for Black people at all. I mean, even something so simple as a helmet is not made for black hair. I mean, mm. like, I mean, I straighten my hair, like my hair is chemically straightened. I mean, not necessarily to fit in the helmet, but for other things too. But I mean, it is a challenge to fit black hair into a helmet. I mean, regardless of what hairstyle you have it in, unless it's straight. I mean, if it's in an Afro, if it's in cornrows, if it's in any kind of braids for that matter, or even if it's just literally natural how it is, it's just, it's so challenging to get it into a helmet. Mm. All the things that we just don't think about. And, and this, is right. where, this is where white privilege comes in, isn't it? And when people are going, yeah. all lives matter and there's no racism here. And I'm like, well, the helmet fits your head, yeah. you know, just little yeah. things like that. You've never thought about yeah. a helmet, have you? You've never, yeah. you know, and different body shapes and everything like that. You've yeah. never had to think about it because stuff's always just fit you. That is a privilege. People. Yeah. That is a privilege. Yeah. yeah. When we all go out to put our helmets on today, we can just stop and go, oh, I am privileged after all. Right. Right. Mm. I think I, you know, what's so interesting is I think that some people, when you say sort of, well, you have white privilege or, you know, like I experience racism and, you know, everybody's inherently racist. People get the hairs on the back of their neck standing up because they feel as if that's a personal attack on them, which it's not. I mean, society as a whole has literally ingrained racism into our being yeah. and having having a side of white supremacy to society as a whole particularly western society and it's i mean it's just in all these little things that go in everyday life that you wouldn't think of and it's so interesting because when somebody says something like and I say it a lot, we need to dismantle white supremacy. Those are the little things that we need. It's that everything in society is made for you and it's nothing in society is made specifically for me unless it's a black owned company or things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I used to, I remember the first time I um, I heard somebody say, and it was, it was, probably last year when everything was blowing up about the inherent racism and things like that. And the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, but um, instead of uh, complaining or voicing, 
I went within and went, yeah, this is really interesting. Wow. The hairs on my neck just stood up. That means there's got to be, mm-hmm. it's got to be true. You know, that I feel really yeah. uncomfortable with somebody saying that that means it's true. Oh right. my God. I thought I was anti-racist and I am in every right. way. I stand up, I speak out, I do all of that. But inside of me is the inherent systemic racism that I grew up with. And I think Glennon Doyle's um, book, Untamed, she spoke it so perfectly that I really came to terms with it when I when I read her book and she talks about the poison within us. And um, it's it's not that we're bad people. It doesn't make us not good enough. It doesn't, doesn't tell any kind of story other than we have this and we need to be aware of it. And, um, and let's admit that we've got it because then it doesn't, um, like I hear you say those things now and it has no effect on me whatsoever because I've acknowledged it. You know, I haven't, I haven't had to go out and do penance on it or anything like that. I've just acknowledged it, that yeah, it's there. You know, I I grew up in a very racist world and, um, and the racism was there and it's active and, and it's still in that my parents' generation now, they still have those thoughts and um and that's okay you know sometimes you've just got to wait for generations to pass before things get really will really change um yeah I've I've had a lot of conversations but sometimes in older people it doesn't it's not accepted the wall's up and you have to just go well that one's just gonna have to wait until it's gone and let's hope the next generation doesn't think it but my point being is that it's okay to feel these things. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you're horrible no. and it doesn't mean you're racist, but it doesn't mean it's in there and we need to acknowledge it's there and we need to just do better. And I think what's very interesting is that um, when you tell somebody or you're having these conversations and telling somebody that they're inherently racist, people for so long have seen racism as racist equals bad person when there are many different tiers to racism. I mean, there's being overtly racist and then there's being complicit and then there is being having inherent racism and things. And I mean, it is such a broad spectrum because people think that racism is the KKK and that's just not true. It's not just the KKK that is racism. There are many other forms of racism that sort of pop up in our everyday life. And I think that it's really funny that, um, I mean, even my family and I mean, they even have white privilege that they didn't know or notice. And they think that they, they thought that they were anti-racist and they just weren't. I mean, not at all. And it was so interesting because I don't really think that my mother even understood white privilege until I must have been early adulthood. And she came to me and said, you know, I just had the most awkward and awful experience at, um, it was some sort of class that she was taking. And I said, why, what happened? And she said, you know, I went into the class and you wouldn't believe it. I was the only white person there. She says, do you know how uncomfortable that was for me? And I'm sitting there thinking like, 
really? Like, really? You're joking to me like, about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> when, when are you going to understand? And I just, I sort of looked at her and laughed and I said, do you know that that is how I feel every single day? And she kind of went, oh, that's white privilege. Yeah. Yep. Just the fact that we're never made to feel uncomfortable. We're never in situations where we feel uncomfortable in right. a race way. I mean, we are as women, but not in a race right. way. Mm. Right. So you've got the double whammy. You've got the woman and the race thing. Right. Oh, that's a lot of tension to hold in the body. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wow. So now you work as a, I'm reading your link tree. Um, you work as a case manager. Tell me yes. a bit more about that. Um, so I have worked for almost a decade on Vancouver's downtown east side, which um, I mean, globally, I think some people are familiar with it. It's one of the, I shouldn't even say one of the, it is the poorest postal code in Canada. Um, and it has the highest concentration of drug and alcohol um, to one area, one of the highest in this country. And um, it was the forefront of the first safe injection site globally um, and works on a harm reduction approach um, in the community with the folks who live in that community. And um, I work with folks who have, who are some of the most street entrenched people and complex care needs. So folks who are, um, who have addictions, significant mental health issues, physical health issues, cognitive delays, um, women who are fleeing abuse, lots of folks who the community is quite racialized. So there's a lot of um, indigenous folks and there are um, several people who have been actual refugees at some point in their life. So there's actually a pretty decent African community which is very interesting for somewhere like Vancouver where there is hardly any um, African community at all, but there is a little bit of an African community in the downtown east side. Um, and then the other part is that there, within that community, there are um, a lot of single parent families who are raising children in that community. Um, because there is even a local school, but I mean, the community is a place where there is open drug use on the streets. And that is just how it's been. There's prostitution, um, all of the things that would make a community quite marginalized and all of the things that come um, with poverty and marginalized communities, so the crime rate would be higher for a lot of petty crimes, thefts, unders, um, just petty things like that, mischief. Um, yeah, I mean, but 
with that being said, I think that the downtown East Side community is one of the strongest and most powerful communities I've ever been in. And really it is a community and that's not what you can say for many pockets in big cities is that most people nowadays barely know their neighbors if they're living in the middle of the city and everybody knows everybody in that community yeah so there's uh there's that and what do you mean by strong as well so i would people in that community have a lot of resilience i mean um trauma is the number one contributor to addiction and that community holds so much trauma intergenerational trauma um is i would say at the forefront i mean a lot of the folks who live in that community are also um residential school survivors and I don't know how much you know about residential schools in Canada, but that is an ugly, ugly history. Um, I mean, basically when the colonizers came to this country and saw First Nations people as savage, they, um, well, they infected them with smallpox, but they also um, killed many of them and then tried to... um, take the Indian out of the man, as they called it. Um, And I mean, just took children from their parents and put them in these schools that were run by the churches called residential schools. And residential schools were some of the absolutely most horrific genocide that we had in Canada because children died there, they were killed by teachers and they were sexually assaulted by clergymen, Um, like absolutely horrific and just ripped away from their families. And that has left a significant long lasting impact of intergenerational trauma to Indigenous communities in Canada that is still very much present today because, I mean, realistically, the last residential school closed in Canada, which will shock people in 1996. I mean, that is not 60, 70 years ago, like 1996. I mean, that is recent. That's less than 30 years. And I mean, a lot of those children are adults now who experience that kind of trauma. So we're not even, we're not even close to three generations down the line. Yeah, they would be around my age. Yeah, I I graduated in 93. So they would be just around my age. They wouldn't even be hitting 50 yet. Or they'd they'd just be, they'd be looking at 50. Um, But yeah, it's, it's there. It's a similar story to Australia you know stolen generations trying to get the black out of them is what they were doing they put took all their children put them in white families sent them off to catholic schools and yeah it's horrendous absolutely horrendous the same that's the same sort of story here and i mean the downtown east side community has a very large indigenous population um and I mean, that is literally the result of colonialism. 
Yeah. And it's horrific. It's just horrific to see, to see that happening. And even, I mean, in 2021, like, I mean, nobody should live in that kind of poverty ever or in those kinds of circumstances. And I think um, when I say strength is that, I mean, I don't know if that had been my path in life, if I would even still be standing. Like, I don't know if my strength to trust human beings and love other people and to be hopeful and to move on and to even care about other people would be intact to be able to survive. Yeah. So you work with trauma every day. Yeah. What kind of an impact does that have on you? You know, it's, I think, everybody who works in sort of social service, hospital setting, things like that, are exposed to a significant amount of trauma. And I think there are sometimes just these certain incidents or certain moments where you almost, I would just call it losing it, where you have to step away or the tears come out or it's triggered something in you from a past experience. But as the time goes on, it's really a skill that you need to learn and you can't learn it from a book and you can't learn it from somebody telling you what to do or how to manage it. You really have to learn it firsthand. And I think that when I first started working there, I really brought a lot of my work home. And it took a couple of years even for me to be able to separate it and to be able to set boundaries with clients and um, and with myself, because really the person who's making the decision whether I'm working after hours or whether that needs to get done is me. It's not the client, right? I mean, it, it's me. So not taking your work home with you is really a skill that you need to develop. But I mean, then again, I'm human. There are going to be times where the situation is so horrific that you need the support of your peers or counseling, and that's okay. In fact, it's healthy, right? And possibly necessary for somebody working in that field. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we talk so much. There's a lot um, I'm looking into now and and really interested in about the amount of tension um, that horses hold. And um, and I've watched trainers like Anna Marcianak and she just walk, works on releasing tension from horses and the change in the horse's movement is absolutely nothing short of miraculous as what I see. But when I listen to your story, I think, how could you not go around each day and hold tension? You know, it's, it's yeah. an amazing thing you do. When you work in a community, like the downtown east side it's very unique and having friendships with coworkers and people that you work with is very helpful because that nobody really gets it other than the people who you're working with and that serves as a really healthy release and support when things are really really challenging when there is 
death after death because we're working on the front lines of the opiate crisis. And there is no other job that in a year you lose almost 50% of your clientele. And that is horrific. And it is heart-wrenching every time. And it is sort of thinking and hoping that you're not getting the next death notification. And I think when you get those, um, I had a police officer call me about it. And um, I, I don't think he really understood sort of the connection that you have with clients. And I mean, we work with clients intensely because we do case management. And part of my job is, um, case management in all aspects so whether that's legal and psychosocial skills and mental health and then um, basic counseling I mean it's everything and when somebody calls you out of the blue as a surprise and tells you that one of your clients who you know really well has passed I mean nothing ever makes that any easier yeah yeah, it's only my imagination that can do it. I, I yeah. can't. Uh, wow. But my question is, so I'm, I'm empathizing here. So I'm seeing you in a, you, so you work in a world where there's trauma like this every day. You're escaping your happy places, horses, but you go there and it's not really made specifically for you either there's just that that little bit of discomfort when you go there and there's that that mm -hmm. thing that you've normalized as well yeah I mean I would say that the best thing in riding is the horse yeah. always the horse I mean and there's no judgment ever from the horse um, although I think that Tigger does judge me when I don't have enough treats, but um, <laughs> there is no judgment from the horse ever. And I think that some of my favorite days are, I'm lucky enough that we're on a property that's nearly a hundred acres and we have really nice trails in the back, um, in the back of the show barn that go on for quite a long time. So you can probably do a good 45 minutes to an hour back there. And um, on Mondays, if it's nice weather, I like to go um, with my dogs and go on just a nice trail walk with Tigger. And he's not a herd bound animal as long as my dogs are there. Um, he's fine to go on his own. And I would say that those are my favorite days in the saddle and really because it's just me and nature and the horse and that yeah. is something that is so healing and so comfortable and it's really free for me without any boundaries to do what I need to do to do what I want and there's no pressure we're not showing we're not working for something we really just are yeah that's that's beautiful that's a moment, isn't it? And they're the ones you've got to hold on to. How often do you get to do that for yourself? I try and do that once a week. Ah, oh, beautiful. And I mean, unless it's raining, but I do try and do that once a week. Yeah. 
And tell me, we stopped before at the start of the Black Equestrian page. Tell me what, why did that take off and how, why is it so important? So the Black Equestrian page, really, its main purpose is to connect to Black equestrians because we are so few and far between and generally have similar experiences but we haven't been connected because we're quite spread apart. So really the intention was to connect us all in one place and to increase sort of visibility in the sport to say, hey, actually, you know, there are black equestrians. It's like, you may only see one of us ever, but there are way more than that. And like, we may be, an anomaly in the sport, but we're going to mobilize and we're going to connect and we're going to have a really strong connection with each other in this sport. And that is sort of what has come out of the whole, the whole page. It's that there has been connection and I've met a lot of people all over the U S and Canada who now I would consider really great friends who are black equestrians who I wouldn't have known unless this page was created. Yeah, it's that feeling of just not being alone. Yeah, absolutely. Not so alone after all. There are people out there and you can take that feeling with you, can't you? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, part of one of the new, a new project that I am putting through um, with Black Equestrians. So it's my project, of course, with the help of Maya and Jen, who help run the page. Um, we're actually going to start a little discussion type support group for specifically equestrians of color. So not just specifically black equestrians, but equestrians of color um, and sort of meet. So we're expanding on the page that we've created, but in a way where we can connect and where we can share and where we can um, build long lasting friendships. And, you know, COVID in North America has sort of made it that hey, online is actually accessible way to connect with people. And, you know, when it's safe to travel and when it's safe to start meeting people in person here, you know, those are actually my first trips that I want to go on is to meet these people that I've connected for, well, now over a year with online who are equestrians just like me. And so that's sort of the hope is to have these groups where, we can all meet and um and from different time zones all over all over the world hopefully because there are several black equestrians who are not in north america who are connected with our network but to have a space that we can all sort of get together and share and start to know each other um and also provide some support and some um trauma-informed conversation with this community and that being sort of my professional hat but also being able to give back to this community um, and offer this is something that I'm very passionate about and 
what everybody else is also very passionate about. Yeah, it's um, it's important work to do. You know, isolation yeah. is done now. And uh, whilst COVID isolated us all, it also brought us all together online. So it's, yes. um, it's a really beautiful, natural progression to, to be doing that. And I love, yes. love that you're able to do it. It's such a wonderful thing to do. And I think, um, you know, from all the work that you do in your every day, it has the feeling of being a little bit cathartic, a little bit healing for you to get out on that and, and actually start talking to other people. It's one of those things you do where you're helping others, but I think it's going to be, be um, that little bit of, oh, I, just, yes. I, I don't want to say, I, w- I want to say healing, but not healing, but it will have a kind of cathartic feeling about, uh, you know, when yes. you're able to do it, it will have that effect on you as well. It's like when I used to do equine therapy, I used to laugh at the end and go, I, I pretty much I'm just telling these people are coming with these issues and I'm helping them through them and paying them, but they're my issues too. And, but they're paying me and I get paid and I'm helping them with their issues, but they're helping me. And yeah, it's got a really nice, nice feel to it. That full circle feel to it. This one that you're doing Um, a little different to that. Your everyday paid work where it's um, it's, you're giving a lot and whilst you receive in, in other ways. um, Yeah. Yeah one has a bit more of a full circle feel to it so that's yes I feel good for you for doing that as well yeah so Steph how can we support you you know I think um visibility I think that um a lot there's a lot of information shared on black equestrians page I think for sure, there's a lot of um, educational posts um, as well. And it's really helpful for people to read them and to sort of get um, get a sense for what's happening and in our community and the things that we're working on and sort of... and not only that to know our strengths and our um and champion our successes and being supportive of our community is something that's really important to us and should be important to other people i think um it broadens the horizon and it also lets people know that there actually are a diverse set of people in the sport and um this is sort of what we need to be more welcoming. And this is sort of what we're celebrating right now. And these are our achievements. And we are participating in all different kinds of disciplines and things like that. And I think that um, then on the other side of my personal page, I mean, I share a lot about my own horses and um, my friends who have horses and I mean things that are comical and things that are heavy and things that are anti-racist and um things about intersectional feminism and I mean it's just it's all over the map and yeah I mean it's knowledge and I think that knowledge is power for everybody 
So I would just invite people to come and join those spaces and learn. Yeah, I must say, once I connected with you on social media and started following you, I learned a lot. Um, the way that you speak up and out, it's um, I love your fierceness in and your <laughs> um, you you don't you say it how it is and I really appreciate that I love people that do that I'm, I'm not for all yeah. airs, and, airs and graces don't do much for me it's like I, <laughs> I need you to tell me I need you to tell me now so that I can get right. it and then I can figure out what to do with that and um, right. and when you're following people like Steph it's about understanding that it's not about you it's really yeah. not about you. It's about learning. And it's about if something makes you feel uncomfortable and you feel like you have to write back and go, all lives matter. You need to look at that right. and just go, you know, well, what's going on for me here? Like I did. I didn't have to go and do some massive therapy session. I just had to acknowledge, wow, I have systemic racism. I grew up in a racist family and I am absolutely feeling really uncomfortable about this and acknowledgement right. is, is enough sometimes. And I just keep reading and I keep learning, but yours is one of my favorite pages to follow because of the way that you write. Um, and it's also um, as a woman, I love the power that comes through in your words I love how comfortable you are with who you are and that you speak out no matter what and um, that you don't ever for a moment think that your voice is not important, that you speak out in the way that you do. It's You're somebody that I actually, when I read your words, I'm like, that, that is how I want my words to sound. That is the kind of person that I, I really want to be. So it's, um, I, I love what you do. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you today and, and hear your story and, and get your story out there. Because um, just by being you, not even the work that you're doing, not even all the amazing things that you, you're saying, it's the, it's the essence of who you are behind your words. I just, I adore it. And I can't wait for you to put something else out to think of what's Steph thinking today? How's she feeling today? And it really comes across in who you are. And I just love that. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm just so glad you're in the world and I'm so glad that you have the voice that you have and I'm so glad that I'm able to share it. And I did also see on your link tree that we can support you via Patreon as well. So um, so let's get in there for anyone that can and, um, and, and really get behind your voice because I think it's an important one and it's one that I really enjoy listening to. Thank you so much. You can see why I was pretty excited about that interview. Steph's pretty amazing, isn't she? I just wanted to drop into your ears now and say thank you for listening up until this point in the podcast. I've had so many amazing um, supporters and listeners over these years and I'm just going to have a little break for now and I wanted to let you know because it really frustrates me when people take a break and don't tell me when I'm listening to their podcast so I am taking a little break. I am rebranding myself at the moment to the Feminine Equestrian and I'll be doing courses and membership and it's going to be an amazing ride that we're going to have together. I am looking at rewilding the women of the horse world and uh, everything that that encompasses and the podcast is going to evolve with me and I'm not sure how that is going to happen yet. So I am going to sit with it for a while and know that for now we are closing off one season and one um, part of the Come Along for the Ride journey and we're going to open a new part eventually. And what that looks like, well, 
who knows? But uh, it's going to be amazing and it's going to head in the direction that I am heading in now, which I think is the way the horse world's going. So stay tuned. I will be back when the time is right. If you want to be notified as to when that is, um, you can join the mailing list at EdenRiverEquestrian.com um, because I'll be emailing everyone on the newsletter list when it comes out and stay tuned to my socials as well because that's where you'll um, that's where I'll be announcing it as well so thanks again and I'll be back when the time is right I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life this is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.